I asked, like, what should I do? Should I take these great internship opportunities or should I get on a plane and go answer this? And his answer was, if you don't go, you'll never know. And with that one sentence, I knew I had to go. Hello and welcome, everyone. I am Jory Calkins, the founder and CEO of Enduring Companies and the host of Built to Outlast, a podcast and community for business builders by business builders. We explore the journeys and companies of business builders in America with a focus on traditional small to mid-sized business niches and the strategies which enable them to endure and flourish. If you are building a business now or aspire to build one in the future, this is for you. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources to support your journey, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is, or if you want to buy or build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. Welcome, everyone, for our show today. We are speaking with Matt Dalio, who is a good and longtime friend and the founder of Endless, which is a collection of initiatives focused on using technology to build a more empowered generation. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jory. It's good to be back in touch with you and chatting. Likewise. Well, I'm I'm super excited to catch up. It's been a little while. I'm going to make so many puns on this episode, but there's endless things we could catch up on. The least of which I'm excited to hear about is Endless, which you've been working on and building for many years. But I always try to start these conversations with the foundation of the individual and the guest. I'd love to, you know, explore that with you whenever you're comfortable starting, if it was, you know, day one of your life or week one or month one or year one or year five, would love to hear your personal background and history. And that'll, I think, kind of naturally lead to everything since then. I'll start with year three. (laughs) Year three, I think one of my first memories was uh, being in China on a trip with my family and getting into a bike accident and going to the hospital and like having stitches in my nose and eating lots of dumplings. And those are basically (laughs) my beginning first memories of life, which I don't know what that says, but (laughs) that trip led me to go uh, with my dad on a bunch of business trips uh, to China over the years. And at 11 years old, a family friend offered to have me live with her. And so I spent a year living in a Chinese family uh, with an elderly Chinese couple going to an all Chinese school. And, you know, that domino was basically, as I like trace my entire life, it was that domino that Um, set basically everything that I am today, like the human as well as the things I do, but the the human that I am that set that whole thing in motion. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like a formative age and a formative experience at a formative age. I'm I'm super excited to learn more about that. Before we jump to year 11, tell me about years three to 11. It sounded like you'd been going back in between to China, but tell me about some of those experiences. I'll give a little picture. I kind of two versions of childhood. I, I moved when I was eight and I kind of categorized everything in my brain as like the pre eight memories and the post eight memories. And the pre eight memories were all, we were living in, in Wilton, Connecticut, basically on the equivalent of an old farm. And my brothers and I, uh, four boys, um, and I was number three, and we would just go and like adventure in the woods. And I, I just like so many of my childhood memories of our life, like, running around in the woods, discovering what we called Cannonball Island, which was, you know, all of like three feet by three feet in the stream, but it felt enormous. You know, my brother sliding out into a a frozen lake and like jumping on the lake, being like, look, I can, you know, the ice hasn't cracked. And me being like, what are you doing? You know, like those kinds of amazing memories, you know, me squashing frog eggs, which to this day I look back and I'm like, I I think we destroyed the population of frogs in that pond and I feel terrible (laughs) about it, you know, 35 years later. But, you know, just amazing memories of childhood. Four boys and uh, running around in nature sounds like a blast and also just havoc. Literally, the the place that we moved, uh, we moved to Miami with my wife, had two two boys, a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And where we chose was basically like my number one heuristic was how much nature can I surround myself with so that I can give my kids that same childhood because it was just such a great childhood. They got to be careful with the gators in Florida. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I was I literally the other day driving through a park being like, it was all flooded. I was like, I'm, I'm maybe not sending my kids out into that. <laughs> 
Awesome. Like we were saying before, I, I learned something new. Even people I've known, you and I have known each other for probably almost 20 years now. And uh, I learned something new every every time. So I had no idea. So, so that's kind of pre-8 experience. And, and so what's between 8 and I guess 11? What are the highlights of the post-8 uh, era? So at eight years old, we moved to a neighborhood. Uh, and that was you know kind of almost leave it to beaver type childhood of like, you know, biking around, uh, I did sail. I was you know, sailing in the, in the summer and, you know, my friends and I would be you know, all with bikes zipping around the neighborhood, going to different friends' houses, sleepovers where like my parents would basically not see us all summer. Cause we were all hanging out at each other's houses and we'd go down to the valley's trampoline and be jumping on that. And we'd go to the pool and like, again, just a, a lot of freedom. Um, and, a lot of fun and uh, just a, a lot of joy. Um, and so, you know, especially at that age, <clears throat> when, when you're young, it was all about my brothers. And when you're older, it starts becoming more about like your friends and your community around you. And that was just a, like a dream, again, a dream childhood, a dream chapter for, for like, I felt like I was getting exactly what I needed at that moment in life. That kind of leads into some of these experiences. I think that you alluded to earlier in terms of just exploration. And so how, how did that lead to, you know, starting to go on these trips with your dad? And then ultimately, I guess a year or so that you were in China uh, at 11. So how, how connect that to kind of starting to explore not only the, the forest and the neighborhood, but you pretty quickly explored way beyond that. Yeah, so my dad had always loved China. He he went there the first time um, by coincidence the year I was born. So his relationship with China is as long as his relationship with me. And he was just going there because out of curiosity at the time. And you know, he would bring me along on on business trips. And you know, in retrospect, he wasn't really doing much business there, but he just I think he just loved it, so he kept going. Uh, and. Along the way, this um, lovely lady who became a friend um, offered to have me live with her. She offered actually when I was nine years old, and my parents spoke to a psychologist, and the psychologist was like, "You might want to wait a few years." <laughs> so at eleven, I got on a plane. I I wanted it. It's crazy. I mean, I, it was my choice, right? So if I hadn't wanted to go, I wouldn't have gone. And I wanted the adventure. I wanted the challenge. I, I remember. As an example, like the Chinese at that time, again, there was just it's a very different China than it is now, right? It was a very poor China. Uh, and most people would sleep on either literally hardwood like beds or on kind of bamboo slats with a little bit of springiness. And I remember there was a mattress and I wanted the hard Chinese challenge. And so and that when I say mattress, I mean like a like a one inch kind of cotton mat type of thing that was on my bed. And Every night when I would go to bed, I would take it off and I'd throw it on the floor because I wanted to sleep on the hardwood the way the Chinese did. And, and my Chinese uh, mother, Guayi, she would you know, come wake up in the morning and be like, you're going to catch a cold. How can you? You have to sleep with the bat. <laughs> and so this is this constant debate. Every morning it ended up on the, on, the, on the floor. And so that was kind of how I was approaching the, you know, the whole attitude was um, let me live the experience to its fullest. It feels like already at, a, at either nine or 11 or whenever, you know, those, those first conversation ca conversations came up. It wasn't necessarily your parents saying you should go here. It was you saying, I want to explore. What do you think was the driver of that? What was the root of that? Was that exploring in the woods and exploring the neighborhood or is it something more innate? Do you have a sense for where that root of just kind of continuous exploration came from? It's a great question because, like, now it seems so crazy. Like, I, I can't imagine sending an eleven-year-old to China. I can't imagine being one. But at the time, it felt so natural. Like, uh, you know, my my dad thought that you know, so kind of, you know, he's an economist and sort of saw what was going to happen with China as it opened up and and saw it was going to be an important country. And you know, the you know, now he tells the story of like how back then there was one skyscraper in all of Beijing and he was sitting atop it as an important bank. And he's like, one day all these little hutongs, all these little streets will be, you know, kind of one story shacks basically will all be sky rises, uh, high rises. And nobody, nobody believed him. And, you know, obviously it, here it is. And so I think there was an, a big element of that um, for my dad. I think there was a big element of, just the importance of experiencing different cultures, like the, the the metaphor I remember him using, basically thirty years ago, that still sticks with me, is that you know perspective. Like when you have two eyes, perspective is 
seeing in three dimensions by seeing things from two points of view. And that is what I feel like it ended up 100% being. Talk about kind of my childhood version of understanding that. But in retrospect now, it's like, absolutely. I can see that things are three-dimensional because I could see things from two perspectives. And as soon as you can see it from two perspectives, you know that there's a third and there's you know the part on the back you can't see. And I think that's changed the way I view everything in life. So I would hear kind of, you know, the, 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 the versions of that that you would describe to an 11-year-old. But I also just, I felt like it was going to be a good experience, a good challenge. It didn't, you know, at the same time as it seems crazy to send an 11-year-old, at the same time as that's true, and at 11 years old, everything's normal. Whatever you get thrown into is normal. And so like, great, okay, I guess I'm living in China. I guess that's normal. Um, and so I... I, I had been enough times that I felt comfortable there. You know, I, I kind of joke sometimes, like for me, China was like, well, we'd go to banquets and I'd get to like sip alcohol as a, as a 10 year old. So I'm like, great, China's fun. You know, like, <laughs> uh, like send me for more of that. You know, but at that point, Madame Gu or Guayi, um, as they call it, Aunt Gu in China, you know, it was like a mother to me already. I mean, I was very close with her. And so it didn't feel like a big leap. It, it, it so I, you know, I, I think I drank the Kool-Aid of this is going to be good for me and, and I'm going to grow. And, and I really, uh, you know, to this day, it's, it's the single most important thing that happened in my life. Everything, everything that I am today came from that. Uh, you know, I was describing to, to Guayi what you know, my life is like today. I feel like if I take those parts out, like anything that was touched by my experience in China, my soul would be like Swiss cheese. Like you'd be taking out so many parts of it that like, I, I, I don't know. I almost don't know what's left. That's awesome. I'd love to hear more about that experience. Obviously, I, you know, as an 11 year old, super adventurous, but to your point, that's what you knew and you didn't know better and or not know better, but you didn't know anything different. And you had some great, you know, people there that you knew and, and, and knew well and, and trusted and were almost like family. So I'd love to hear about, you know, what that experience was like. You described, you know, some of the the very kind of tactile specifics of sleeping and, you know, the mats and things like that. But what are some of the other things that now 20 plus years later are still very vivid memories for you that you feel like were formative parts of that year that you spent? I remember my first day of school. I remember there was a, a recess after class. And at the point I let it understand it, literally anything that was being said in class. And I was there drawing, I think, an American flag. I was super patriotic that year. I'll tell you another story on that if you want. But uh, I remember after class, classes were 50 kids. And basically the entirety of the 50 kids surrounded my desk to observe this, this Lao Wai, this, this foreigner. And, you know, while I'm sitting there drawing my American flag and journaling, I remember going to the playground and for the first long time, kids would run up and, you know, touch my hair, the smooth hair. I remember it was one day in the first week where there was rain and one of the kids pushed me off of the uh, kind of the two steps down, you know, the, the, the terrace. And I like did this move where I, I don't know where it came from. Like I like turned around, like grabbed him and pulled him towards the, toward into the rain and used the momentum to pull myself back up. And everyone thought I was like a superhero. Um, <laughs> That's like matrix. I mean, that's what it felt like. I, I certainly felt that way. <laughs> I was tall. Um, I was great, you know, quote unquote, great at basketball. So I wanted to be, a, um, everyone wanted me on their basketball team, which was great. And pretty quickly, I started to make friends. Um, I, I, I remember, as I say, friends, I remember one of the kids um, not liking, he was kind of a bad kid in class. And I remember my Chinese teacher at the time, at this point, I'd become very close friends with her and and her son, and so I would go to her uh, her home a lot, and I'd hang out in her in her uh, office when you know during the classes that I just were way over my head, or during English class, I'd spend hours and hours in there and just chatting, and it's just amazing, amazing woman. And I remember sitting in her living room one day, and um, we had just gone and bought um, goat head, which she was disgusted by, but I was like, I must eat all the disgusting things, and so I had like you know crunching on some eyeball. <laughs> Continuous exploration, um, endless exploration, endless exploration of food, you know culinary explanation, exploration, um, and you know it, they don't normally eat those things, but I was like, you know, if it's there, I've got to eat it. You know, the intestines, everything. 
and I remember she, she, her, her and her son, I was like, tell me all the swear words, swear words. And so she told me some sentence that was like a really bad sentence. And then she told me another sentence that was a really bad sentence. And so when I went back to, to school, the, 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 the bad kid um, said one of these to me. And I was like, oh, okay. And, what, and, I, and I knew what it meant. I was like, oh, what does it mean? And he's like, oh, no, no, it's a good thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, just like this other sentence. And I you know, threw, <laughs> threw the equivalent of some like really bad swear words at him. I was like, just like those are, are good sentences. Um, so I, <laughs> it was this kind of experience of like just being a kid, making friends, uh, having my rival, you know, playing lots of basketball and bonding with kids over that. But a totally different experience, maybe in in many ways, than what you'd had prior to that. In the sense that you're you were kind of the foreigner, you know, you were the kind of unique or different one. And I, it feels like that would and likely has informed a lot of your ability to have perspective in different contexts that maybe you know other people that haven't had that experience aren't as suited to do. So I might be reading too much into it, but it feels like that was a pretty unique and different experience than many people have at a pretty formative time. Is that fair? It's a great point. It's funny. As you were saying that at first, I was like, I don't, I don't normally think about it that way, but I, I realize as you said that almost maybe it's so embedded in me that I don't realize how it's not normal. And the thing that came up for me was, you know, many years later, um, I, I, as I was designing endless OS and I, for the past 10 years, I've been, I've been doing a bunch of work in emerging markets and doing a lot of user testing and like, I realized that as I would do that, I, I would like, you know, go for runs um, through like rural India and then like end up in someone's home, just like sitting on the floor in their living room, talking to them for three hours. And I just realized like, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm very comfortable being the outsider thrown into those kinds of worlds. And I feel comfortable and I, I love it. And I, I think you might be right that maybe it, maybe it does trace back to that. I feel like that's a, a differentiated thing and almost a superpower, right? To feel comfortable when you're uncomfortable, when most people would feel uncomfortable and to not only feel comfortable, but to like enjoy it and want more of it. It's a very, in my experience, at least a very unique thing. And certainly it feels like this experience might not be all of it, but is kind of core to that route, which is, that's super interesting. I'm, I'm maybe reading way too much into it, but it's definitely obviously a very unique experience for for an 11 year old to have. So I, I digress, but, and I didn't want to take you off your train of thought. No, I, I, I like it and I'll, I'll, I'll roll on the digression, even if you cut it out, just cause you know, it's interesting to, 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 to psychoanalyze myself, but I'll take the, the, the slightly tangential view, which is um, when I smell cigarette smoke, I feel deep nostalgia for Spain because my mom is Spanish and we would go to Spain every summer. And it reminds me of childhood. and Strangely, when I smell garbage that's rotting in the summer, I smell that one smells like Spain. I love it. It's very strange. Two memories to associate with Spain, but they're nostalgic for me and they bring me back to that moment. And when I traverse emerging markets, when I like step into a dusty street in the middle of nowhere in some poor town, for me, it's like, oh, I'm home. And I think you're right. It, it must have come from them. Yeah, it's amazing. It's not a setting where everyone feels com- where it's actually a setting where many people with the range of experiences you had you have had feel uncomfortable. And to you, it's the ac- exact inverse of that. Which, especially you know, with what you're doing and building now, is kind of a, a core superpower that you have. So I don't want to jump ahead and, and and get to that, but I'm excited to 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 talk about it. So you're having this experience at 11 in China, and then the year ends at some point, and you come back to the US. What happens next? So I knew it would be hard to go there. And because of that, it wasn't actually that hard to go there. I didn't know it would be hard to come back. And because of that, it was really hard to come back. Because I expected it to be the same, but I had changed. And my friends had also changed. You know, at 11 years old, it's like 10% of your life. <laughs> you actually change a lot in that year. And so I remember coming back and it's like, you know, AOL had just happened and there were these chat rooms and these little hacking tools to kick people out of the chat rooms. And everyone's talking about that and all these other things that like I'd never heard of. And so I 
I remember that was kind of one of the first moments in life that I felt um, lonely and like an outsider. Ironically, I, I felt more like an outsider coming home to my friends than I felt going there with strangers. In fact, there I felt so much, as I immersed myself in that world, so much love and so much community. I remember the Christmas. They didn't celebrate Christmas at the time. I spent three days biking around Beijing looking for a Christmas tree. And the only thing I could find was a three-foot Christmas tree. And like, I, you know, I, I remember that party we threw for Christmas and it was all the people I loved and we were dancing until midnight with all the American music that they entertained, you know, and, you know, my, my whims and dancing too. And I just felt so much community and so much belonging. And the irony was that when I came home, it was like, oh, I'm, I don't fit anymore. And I think that's, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, other, other, other versions of that, but that's something that to this day is still in me. Um, that's still also, you know, still a deep part of me. You felt like it, the it, things had changed in the mat, the fit wasn't there or that, you know, just kind of this relative context of things evolving and, and you know, things evolving in different ways. That I don't have, a, you know, psychoanalyze myself, that I don't have a clear, like, slot that I can fit in and be like, that's my community, these are my people. Because I'm part of so many worlds, because that theme has carried throughout my life and in you know a lot of ways, it's become just a, my, like my DNA. I like as traversing all these different worlds. I fit into a lot of places, but there isn't necessarily one place aside from my home and my family where it's like, okay, I'm like fully home. What an amazing back to context and ability to think and see in multiple dimensions and perspectives. I mean, because of that foundation that you have, I feel that you can build off of. I feel like you have and are able to have perspective that not everyone or most people probably don't have because they're not traversing those different worlds or communities or experiences. I, I don't know if you've found that, but I, I think it's pretty interesting and pretty unique. Yeah, the, the blessings and the curses, right? We're all made of our experiences and and. I feel very, very, very lucky to have had the experiences, and you know, and there are some parts of it that I'm like, I, you know, I, 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 I wish I had a place that I belonged more. And you know, there are a lot of reasons, you know, traveling for a decade, you know, 300 days a year, you know, on average, like, that also shaped that. You're starting China Care, and we'll talk about that in a minute, I'm sure. But in high school, it'd be like most kids are like heading to spring break um, and having fun with each other. And I'm like in high school going to orphanages. Uh, again, we'll talk about that in a minute. But like there were a series of things that have you know been part of the all the many dots that that made that up. I'd love to go there because this. So this is where our kind of paths started crossing in high school. But let's maybe roll forward to that experience, and in particular, you know, as you mentioned your continued involvement in contact points in different ways with China and the China Care Foundation. And so how did, how did that come about? You know, how did your experience from, you know, that year at 11 evolve over time as you, you know, transitioned into high school and, and continue to, you know, stay involved with that community and that world of, of the many different ones you were kind of involved in? So when I was uh, 16, a family friend had adopted a girl from China. And you know that's around the, the age where you're looking at like college. Um, I've got to volunteer. It had also been five years and I'd been to China once because uh, I had no reason to go back. And so I was like, I want to do something to go back. I want to do something to give back. I want to volunteer. Uh, and so I spent a summer in an orphanage in China. And I realized, you know, a lot of things that first there were a lot of kids who were abandoned because of the one child policy where just heartbreakingly kids, you know, would have like cleft lip and the parents couldn't afford the surgery. And so it's like, well, you know, they would be abandoned or they were girls and in a one child policy where kids grow up and it's the boy that's supposed to take care of the family, the parents um, for the rest of their lives and the girls get sent to you know to get married and and then disappear like you know in that in, in that traditional society uh, which is what it was lots of girls would be abandoned so i realized that for uh, $500 you could provide a cleft lip surgery for $500 you could take a child from an orphanage and place them in a foster family where families would want to have more kids and this was their way of having more kids and they just basically needed the costs covered and that's what it cost $500 
And so I, I came home and I was like, please help. Um, it was my Eagle Scout project reaching out to people to, to, to help. And, you know, there were a few people. I remember the first $7,000 check and I was like, whoa, that's 14 kids whose lives are going to be changed. And I remember someone else giving $25,000, which, you know, was like, whoa, I get 50 kids. And so literally that year I was able to go back and place 50 kids in foster families. And so I, I went back and, and did that. And, and then I came back to the U S and I was kind of constantly back and forth and told the story. Uh, my brother was in film school and so he would videotape all this and he would make these little um, films for me and we would use that to fundraise and the compelling nature of a young kid wanting to help other young other children babies and having a, a you know not just a story but the footage to go along with it to show this these kids whose lives were changed meant that I was able to get more support the Boston Globe Greenwich Time featured it then the Boston Globe picked that up and then someone sent it to teen people I was chosen as one of 20 teens to change the world then People Magazine picked it up, and then Oprah saw it from People Magazine, and wow. then they invited me on on Oprah, and 32 million people saw that. And out of all that, I got you know, thousands of emails of people wanting to help, and that all boiled down to one person who was full time as a volunteer. And then together we worked, and then that let us, you know, do enough to raise enough to hire a full time first person. And Next thing you know, we had five children's homes across China with um, kids um, constantly doing thousands of surgeries a year, hundreds of kids in foster families, providing financial aid for kids um, to get adopted, starting playgroups in the U.S. where U.S. college and high school students would hold playgroups for, uh, would have clubs there where they'd hold playgroups for for adopted kids. And it just kind of, you know, it kept growing and, and I, I kept loving what I was doing and I loved the impact and I loved building it. That's awesome. I had no idea and I didn't mean to, to, to jump in, but I had no, I knew about it and I knew, uh, you know, I knew what it was about. I always thought it was a, a, you know, an awesome effort, but I had no idea of the scale of it. That's amazing. Yeah, and and that, what I loved about how, when you were first thinking about it, $500 equal to surgery, you know, the, the money immediately was translated into this is how I can help. Like it was an immediately contextualized into people and on the ground, which, you know, not everyone thinks in that way. And I think that could reflect back on the, you know, the ability to have that context and that real experience of, oh, this is what that, you know, this is what these dollars mean. This translates into $7,000 equals 14 kids and surgeries that like immediate context is, is very interesting. I always used to say that, like, I, I think charity so often is like, I donate a check to something and then something happens, maybe, hopefully. And like the, the, the gap between like the dollars I put in and the impact I have is so large. And I, I just, all, I remember keeping, like, just wanting to make it as concrete as possible. Like, we did a foster sponsorship uh, program and we would have updates on every single child. Like, your dollar is going to help this child. Because it was so real for me, like I would go there and I would hold a child one year and that child literally would be two weeks away from dying in a rural orphanage in inner Mongolia. And I, I, I remember a moment where I was like, like, is there not anything we can do? I had spina bifida. And so the sack would pop, that's what just like had a little sack on your back and it's very thin and the sack would pop, the child would get infected and the child was going to die. And like we were able to take that child literally on an 18 hour train ride wrapped up, bundled safely to Beijing, give that child a surgery. And that child is now in Nebraska, like an 18 year old or something, you know, like, and I did that. Wow. And knowing I did that made me realize like, like the dollars that people gave me to do that, did that. Let me tell them about it. Let me make it as concrete for, for them as it is for me. That's awesome. That's amazing. Well, what a, a um, both impactful experience, obviously to that child and many other children, but also probably formative for you. And, and I'm excited to, to kind of get into what's next and in your journey and ultimately, you know, what you're building at Endless and what some of those kind of similar metrics are that you think about, not just dollars, but like lives that you're touching um, there. But before we get there, so you've built up this the China Care Foundation to a pretty significant impact. What's next? So this is in high school and then you're, you head to college, but What's the next leg of the journey for you? So I think I started trying to care the year I met you. 
And uh, by the way, I, I, I have to say, because I think it's funny, I, I, I was working super hard. I also wanted to get good grades and get into a good school. And I remember, I think there were two or three people who I was like vying with to get good grades. And um, one of those who was the, you know, right side by side, I'd always want to know what Jory got on his, <laughs> on his test. It's amazing you brought that up. So I debated whether or not I should bring this up, but I have a visual, just like you described a visual memory of the mat like in your, at your 11 year old experience, I remember a, a visual experience with you where I was like, uh, same exact thing. Like I felt like a camaraderie and, and kind of like benevolent competition, you know, how's Matt doing? Cause I, I have a visual memory of, do you remember, uh, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it was our 11th grade math class. Mr. Altman. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I remember we would both be working our butts off and uh and it was just fun I, I thought it was fun but i have a visual memory of like oh you know i, I think i like you either finished the, one of the tests early or you know you were um taking longer or something and i was like comparing myself as i handed mine in or you handed yours and i was thinking in the back of my mind oh crap <laughs> what did matt do did i did i miss something is he you know what that i mean funny. so uh <laughs> that's why i have the exact the, the mirror mirror memory <laughs> that's amazing speaking of like context so and funny. perspective i had very similar feelings but i you know i have all for me it was amazing informative and what a fun way to have kind of that combination of camaraderie and like kind of brotherly competition but i digress but it's amazing you brought it up i i did i was wondering and thinking about that as well. And speaking of context and perspective, it sounds like we had very similar experiences yeah. and, and similarly appreciated it and look back fondly on it. So I appreciate you bringing that up. It's funny to look back you know, 20 <laughs> years and get to see it. <laughs> okay. So you're, so you're in, you know, we're, we're in high school together. We're going back and forth on math tests, trying to beat one another. You probably beat me a few more times than I beat you, but we all got better in the, uh, you know, in the, in the process. It was, it was neck and neck. I remember okay. that. <laughs> Um, so take me to the end of high school and then, and then college and, and then, you know, what was the chapter, you know, or chapters in between then and, and what you are and have been building endless now, what are the, what are kind of the, the chapters in between? Cause I want to make sure we uh, have some time to, to discuss endless as well. So uh, high school worked hard. High school was tough on a lot of levels. Um, and China Care was like my you know, whole life, especially when I went into college. I'll make this part quick, but basically, I, I think I spent as long trying to make sure that China Care could live on beyond me as I did building it up into something. I tried multiple iterations of like, you know, finding a leader, it not being the right leader, I mean, multiple versions of that. Eventually, uh, found a great organization and merged it into that organization, kind of an M and A type thing, which uh, rarely happens in nonprofits. But uh, in this case, it meant that you know there, there were synergies uh, and all of those things, but like you know very meaningfully so. And it also meant that it was then in, in really good, like the important programs lived on in really good form under good leadership. Uh, and the China Care Children's Home um, is still there today. It's still taking care of kids wow. uh, every day of the year. Do you have a sense for, you know, how things are going and, and you know, how that has continued today? It's, you say that. So my, my uh, passport went out today to uh, go get a Chinese visa so that I can go visit in a couple of weeks. So I'm hoping uh, that I'll get to see it for the first time since COVID um, in, in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Well, that'll be, that'll be an awesome experience, I'm sure. So you've built an impressive and at even larger scale than I had known operation with China Care that's impacting a lot of lives. So that's probably during college, is that right? And then did it continue after college or at what point were you able to, you know, get that to a point where it kept running without you and and then what was the next, you know, chapter for you? So roundabout college, uh, kind of end of college was about when I was able to to pass it on. I graduated from college. I went into real estate, real estate development. I love real estate. I, in particular, the thing I love about real estate was I had this like yearning for community. Um, it was one of these themes. And I just loved the way that certain places were just like filled with a bustling sense of community. Um, you know, the, the town square, the park filled with kids, the I don't know, the way the Europeans do it, where you've got, you know, it just, it just feels beautiful. And, and there are places that feel like, wow, people have come alive and people are interacting with each other. And I wanted to create that. I wanted to bring that to more people. 
So I, I went into real estate development, was very lucky to be part of a, uh, a project that was doing exactly that in a, in a really cool way uh, at, at Harbor Point Development in Stanford, Connecticut, and loved that. But I realized that you know the, that's been a 15-year project, maybe 20 at this point, and you fly over it in about half a second on a, you know, uh, in an airplane. So the, the goal of like broad reach of impact, uh, you know, is, is so deep in me. And so around that time, I realized I, I wanted to go to business school. I wanted to kind of reimagine what I wanted to do with my life. I think one of the happiest months of my life was getting into Stanford Business School. Uh, the uh, admissions director calls everyone to accept them. I get this call. I was uh, when I was sitting on the toilet. Um, you're a visual. <laughs> And I, and I didn't take this random call from this random number I did not recognize, but I listened to the voice message while I was sitting there. And I basically like jumped <laughs> in the air out of the, <laughs> the bathroom uh, for excitement because I, I just wanted it so badly. And in retrospect, as I look at the dominoes of life and the pivot points in life, uh, it ended up being one of the greatest blessings of my life because it sent me on the path that I'm now on using technology to impact a lot of people's lives, hopefully, um, at, at scale in very meaningful ways. And none of what I do today would have been possible without my experience in China, and none of what I do today would have been possible with that experience at, at Stanford. Well, I couldn't uh, think of a better lead-in to the genesis of Endless and, and kind of not just your foundations, but the foundation of you know what that has uh, grown into and become. So what was the kind of kernel uh, of that idea? And, and, you know, was that kind of unveiled at, at the GSB or, you know, how, how did that uh, evolve uh, out of, you know, how did Endless evolve out of your GSB experience? Yeah. So I'll describe that kernel and that insight moment just with the caveat that uh, what we do today has nothing to do with that. <laughs> so that, that insight sent me on my way to, to realize other insights. But the core idea I was on a global studies trip, which is a required uh, international trip. And I, I picked India. I, I love India. And when I was there, uh, this was 2010, and smartphones were kind of all the rage in Silicon Valley. You know, this was the era of like Snapchat launched while I was at Stanford. Instagram launched uh, basically the month I landed on Stanford's campus. Like all of these bubbling things, all these possibilities. Uber was launched when I was there. Oh, it was kind of the, the, the heyday of the smartphone. And if you went to India, it was like 1% smartphone penetration. Like nobody had that. And I had two insights when I was in India. The first was the prices are going to come down with volume. That was obvious. And everybody is about to have a smartphone. Like, like the world is about to change because of the smartphone. Holy cow, that is amazing what's about to happen. And, and obviously that turned out to be true. The other insight uh, I'll say with the... With, uh, so the, uh, the other insight was... I was sitting in a room in India. I look up on the wall and there's a TV. And by the way, like 80 to, I think it's 90% of the world has TVs. Uh, like the, the TVs are everywhere. And there was just this kind of aha click. I was like holding my phone. I was like, this is a computer tower. That TV is a <laughs> monitor. If you just plug one into the other at a keyboard and heck, you can use the screen as a mouse. You can basically make a computer for the cost of a keyboard and a cable. And all it takes is software to make that happen. And now billions of people who are about to have smartphones can have computers. So I, I had that thought. Uh, I came home. I didn't want to start a company, so I kind of forgot it. Um, and then it bubbled up, and I thought about it, and then I pushed it back, and you know, and it kind of kept bubbling up, and it kept gnawing at me at some point, and I, I did not want to start a company. And so I was like, you know, I'm, uh, I, you know forget it, Matt. I saw Jack Dorsey speak. He said, uh, that's one of the nice things about Stanford is you have these kinds of people flowing through all the time. And uh, he, he said something I'll never forget, which is, it, you know, when I have an idea, I research it so that I can kill it and move on with my life. And I was like, that's perfect. I'm going to research this so I can kill it and move on with my life. I'm going to find out why it doesn't work. And so I spent months researching every corner um, of the idea. Technically, is it possible? And you know everything, supply chains. How would you do? You know how would you produce everything? And again, everybody's there. I could ask anybody anything. I could take classes on anything I wanted um, to, to, to get answers. And so, 
it basically, you know, I'd, I'd encounter a problem, I'd, you know, kill it. I'd be like, great, now I can move on with my life. And then, you know, five days later, I'd come up with an idea and be like, wait, but if you did this, then it answers that problem. And so enough cycles of that, I realized that the real question was, do people want it? And I couldn't answer that in Silicon Valley. I had to answer that in the field. I had uh, two great internship opportunities. Um, one of them was to be um, employee number eight at um, Thumbtack, which is now a unicorn. Uh, so the person who, who took that internship uh, um, is, you know, is the COO of, um, of what's now a unicorn. But when I asked my advisor, um, who is someone I had been you know, turning to for advice along the way, I asked, like, what should I do? Should I take these great internship opportunities or should I get on a plane and go answer this? And his answer was, if you don't go, you'll never know. And with that one sentence, I knew I had to go. And so I traveled through China, India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Thailand, uh, I think through 18 cities in some of many of those cities, literally carting like a, a, a full plasma TV, you know, like flat screen TV through security, you know, flying into Bangladesh, negotiating with the, with the, with the security guard there <laughs> at the same time as figuring out if he had a computer and whether he wanted one for his kids. And to try and answer the question, do they want a computer? Not just a smartphone, but a computer. I'm imagining you doing a like customer discovery conversation during a security pat down. I'm just, 100%. <laughs> 100%. I'm sitting there like, can we keep this going? Can we talk a little longer? Because this is great. I'm learning a lot here. <laughs> and before I, uh, I, I'm, that's a hilarious visual. And then uh, before uh, you keep going, I feel like the, if you don't go, you'll never know is not only applicable for this experience, but applicable for a lot of, Things that you've done in your life in particular, in everyone's life, but in your life in particular. But I, I digress and want to let you keep going. But what a powerful quote. We, we used to say, I'll throw in another quote, but you know, magic happens when you travel because it literally, whenever I would travel places or anyone on the team would travel, it felt like magic was happening. And you know, by the way, I've been traveling a lot lately for Endless Studios and the games work that we're doing now. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But my wife the other day was like, I feel like it's almost like, God is sprinkling petals of gold in front of you wherever you go. Like magic happens. And I, I really believe it's true. Magic happens when you travel. When in doubt, go. Because if you don't go, you'll never know. I, I really, I just like a, a theme of life. Yep. Yep. Totally. Which is tough with two kids at home, but magic happens. Sometimes I think my wife wants to kick me out of the house. So yeah, it's a, for me, it's the right, <laughs> it's the right balance of travel. Uh, but I miss, you yeah. know, I miss them pretty quickly. And, and hopefully at once they, you know, are done being sick of me. They welcome me back. I think my wife wants to kick me out of the house because I wasn't here for bedtime last night. And two screaming babies were on her. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that I've thoroughly taken us off track, I, I, let's go back to Endless because it's a, a fascinating, you know, evolution and ecosystem that you've you've built out of that kind of one kernel and one couple insights and trip. So please keep going. I apologize. I keep, uh, you know, taking tangents. Yeah, no, this is, this is good. So I, I'm going to give you the, the punchline just because it'll help you make uh, sense of anything else I say from here on out, which is that you know, if you look back uh, on a, a decade-long journey of building this, there are three things that we do. And all of them build up towards our vision, which has been our vision for 10 years, which is the whole world empowered. Every kid is empowered to live a, a life to, that's both fulfilled and, and you know, economically productive. Um, and when I say every kid, I mean every kid. Uh, not just those who are privileged enough to have computers or internet access, um, every kid. And doing that requires um, three things. The first is it does require every kid to have a computer, because if you have one, you're on an equal platform. And if you don't have one and you're trying to do your homework you know, on a smartphone and someone else has a computer, like kid who's got the computer all those years is going to do better. So you need to make it so every kid has a, a device. And the way we do that, we think about that, is that you got to make it affordable, I'm happy to walk through the journey of how we came to these conclusions. In most cases, it took us about five years to learn any of this stuff. But basically, if people have financing, they can buy it. Uh, it's like a house, you know, if you are a, or a car. Like if you space the payments out over long enough, then like the monthly payment's affordable. And it turns out that that's true for uh, for computers. And so we have a pay-as-you-go financing mechanism that basically um, locks the computer when they don't pay, which means that people pay, which means that banks are all of a sudden willing to, to lend to people that they wouldn't have lent to before. And now all of a sudden, lots more people can afford a computer, 
right behind that, you're going to have internet access issues because almost half the planet still doesn't have internet access um, because they live in uh, rural parts of the world where you know signal doesn't get to or wires certainly don't get to. Or it's expensive, which is often the case in America. 15 million kids in America don't, 15 million kids in America, wow. in this country, either don't have a device or internet access. And when you go to certain populations, like when COVID happened, it was 40% of kids of color don't have internet access. And in that case, many of those live in cities. They just can't afford the monthly cost because, you know, Comcast is expensive. And that's even you know, more so when you're um, living on a, uh, you know, in a rural place in, in an emerging market and you're not making much. Um, and the way we think about solving internet access is that while the rest of the world focuses on getting wires or satellites to them, um, while we're waiting for that to happen, and you know, uh, it's been a decade, and, and I've been working on this, and it still hasn't happened, and it's you know, it'll, you know, so what are you going to do in the meantime? Our answer is really simple: a uh, hundred-dollar hard drive will fit millions of web pages. Storage is cheaper than bandwidth, and it really is that simple. If you Take it if you really internalize the fact that storage is so much cheaper than bandwidth, you can put lots of stuff inside of the device. You can refresh it whenever people get access to the internet. And you can, like, just with Wikipedia, you can change a life. Just with Khan Academy, you can change a life, let alone with like lots of information that will teach you coding and all sorts of different things. Like, like put it all in there. Any content you want or can imagine, lean into the fact that, again, a hundred dollar hard drive basically stores every website we've ever been on wow. videos take more content but you can you know you, you you can deal with that intelligently communications cheap whatsapps you know and tweets are, are tweets are a couple kilobytes so that stuff's cheap and everything else that's heavy you just preload um, and that literally is life-changing and i'll just give you kind of one story of a uh, marcia in guatemala who uh, used to go to school, couldn't go to uh, afford an internet cafe anymore, so she couldn't do her homework, and so she dropped out. Because why go to school if you can't do your homework? Um, and she got an endless computer, and this was in the early days. And at that point, we literally had just installed Wikipedia. So what I'm about to describe, to describe literally, it was just like, I have Wikipedia. This is what happens. She now had a computer in her home, so she had more time than her classmates with computers who had to, you know, pay by the hour and could only afford an hour at an internet cafe. Uh, and the last time I saw Marsha, she showed me her sash um, as valedictorian of her class. Wow. And when I asked her and her mom, like, you know, did the computer have anything to do with it? Like, what was the role? Like, trying to downplay the role of it just to kind of tease out. You know, they were like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, it was the reason. It was the reason that I have this. That's amazing. So that's the endless access side of the house. In the process of researching Endless, we had two big insights, um, Endless OS um, and then the Endless Access um, work we do. And they both basically, uh, I'll talk about those in a minute, I'm sure, but they both basically led us to realize games can teach. Uh, games can teach skills like coding. And through a similarly long journey of kind of really understanding how games can teach, we learned that both playing games can teach, but more importantly, building games can teach. And if you want to teach 21st century skills, uh, which is kind of a cliche term at this point, but basically it's kind of like, if you want to teach the jobs that you're, you know, the skills that you're going to need to get a job in the future, like how you, you know, yes, how you code, but also how you design, how you project manage, what a Kanban board is, what agile methodology is, how you do user-centered design, how you take a product to market, like all of that stuff, like that's what jobs of today are. Like software is touching everything. If you know how to use it, you're going to be better at your job, whatever it is. If you don't know how to use it, you're probably going to be, you know, especially with AI and all the crazy things that are happening at a disadvantage to those who do know how to use it. So you want to be one of those who knows how to use it and you want your kids to be one of those who know how to use it. And if you know how to build a game, you know how to build software. So let's go teach you as a kid to build the thing you're really excited to build. Like every kid wants to build a game. That's why Minecraft has been so successful is because basically it's like I get to click around and build all the things that I can imagine. But like building real games is like the ultimate version of that. So like it's the ultimate Minecraft. Um, so let's teach you how to do that. And in the process, you're going to know how to learn. You're going to learn how to build software. And from that, you're going to be able to build all sorts of software in whatever industry you want, in whatever role you want in the future. That's awesome. And with the China Care Foundation, one of the, I don't want to say success metrics, but yeah, I guess ultimately kind of achievement metrics was 
not denominated in you know dollars and donations, but it was denominated in how many childrens could you know receive surgeries or be you know placed into loving families across the different you know areas of endless right now. What do you what do you think kind of the key metrics of success and achievement are, and and how are you all doing versus where you want to get, and you know kind of where is the journey heading on those different and and other variables. Great question. How do you measure success, especially with dollars and impact, and and where do we stand on on you know on doing that? My childhood is um, having started you know in the nonprofit world, um, but my my dad was always in the business world, and I always knew I wanted to get back into business. That was you know probably more of my childhood than anything. And there's a reason I'm not by and large, although I'll caveat that in a second, running a bunch of nonprofits in here. You know, especially Endless Studios, which I think is kind of like the, the tip of the spear for all of this stuff as a company. And it's a company because in order to achieve this mission, it has to generate the sort of business model that will generate the revenue to hire the people that it takes to pull this off. Like I literally just yesterday was going through our projections and our models. And, you know, and it's just clear this stuff costs a lot of money to do to build a Google and a Facebook and any of these things. It's like, you know, OpenAI started as a, a foundation and they realized they got to be a company. And the same is true, I think, for this is that um, there aren't enough nonprofit dollars to do this. So it's got to be a company. But when I look at the impact, I do think about it. In the long term, I think they're one and the same. In other words, if we create a platform that can get kids, and I'm going to oversimplify, you know, kind of, but, but there are ways of getting kids degrees. There are now online degrees in different ways for both high school and university. And so there are ways of getting. You know, and there are partners that we're working with that can get us degrees for kids. So while we're not starting with degrees, that is the goal, is that you literally can, if you want, get a degree no matter where you are um, in all the things, you know, about what it looks like to make software. And eventually, I don't know, one day you get landscape design because you're landscaping and the architecture design because you're building architecture for the buildings inside of these, you know, these games. So you can get lots of, you can, te- you can test lots of skills. I just want to be clear inside of this. You can build lots of skills by, by building inside of games. But the process uh, of doing that, if you, know, if you can get a, a kid a degree for $150 a month, that is life-changing. That is absolutely affordable. And if you do that for a million kids, it's $150 million a month coming in. Wow. And if you can spend $150 a month teaching kids, you can build some pretty freaking cool stuff. So the two, as far as I'm concerned, are one and the same in the long term. In the short term, um, they're not. In the short term, like generate revenue now <laughs> um, and have impact. Um, and literally yesterday, I, I, I woke up with kind of a little snapshot of a dream. And I usually wake up and meditate uh, to kind of make sense of my dreams and plumb whatever my subconscious might be bubbling up. And and this time I woke up to a, a screaming, crying kid. Um, <laughs> and so my meditation was all of two seconds as my head popped up. But the, the dream was, the snapshot was of a slum overhead looking out over just this large slum. And I was like, uh, the, the, you know, and that I mean, two second meditation was, we've got to go there. We've got to go there. We've got to get this there. And now... And now, so that we learn from it, so that we actually can be teaching all of those kids. If you don't, if you don't go, you'll never know, right? You know, uh, yes, exactly. If you don't go, you'll never know. That's absolutely right. So we've we've got to go, and we, uh, we've got to go, so that we know what we have to do to go <laughs> there at scale. And by the way, one really important point is that our major cost in scaling is paying mentors. Where do those mentors come from? Well, they come from the community of participants who are early, you know, who are later in the journey, right? Like, so you go through the learning journey, and then now you can become a mentor for people who are one step behind you in the journey. So, ironically, we can pay you for being part of this community. We can pay you for being part of this journey. So, a kid in the slum can look at it and say, "I can make money on the other side of this. It's not just it's costing me 150 bucks a month. Maybe I'm making 150 bucks a month." And the same thing is true of the output of this. If you've got a whole bunch of kids who are building games, well, those games can be sold out in the world. Those can be published. Either the small games they're building or professional studios working with this talent because it's kind of the way it works is it's almost like an open source community of people building games. It's like GitHub meets games. It literally uses GitHub when you're more advanced in the pathway. 
you literally are in GitHub building games collectively. And so these games can be really actually cool. If I go into some of the games, types of games you can build, really, really cool games that are useful and valuable and people will pay for them because they either are fun or because they're like, teach me English or teach me to code or teach me investing or teach me things I want to know. And so now I can pay you because you're the cheapest talent around. I could pay a US developer what a US developer costs, or I could basically pay a kid their scholarship to build this game and then pay them part of the revenue that that game just made. So long story short is that this ecosystem of cogs, and there was the cost of goods sold and tuition are just inverses of each other. I can either pay tuition or I can mentor and, you know, and someone else is paying me to do that. And it's a matter of getting that flywheel going. And then once it, you have it going and feeding back into itself, then it, exactly. to your point, you start hitting that scale where you can really have the impact you're trying to, and size you're trying to have. Exactly. That's awesome. What's kind of next on the horizon that you're building or, you know, what are you most excited about? What's getting you, aside from a few young kiddos, what's getting you jumping out of bed and getting on the next plane? And, you know, what are you most excited about that you all are working on? The momentum feels like palpable. We are early in the journey. So, so a lot of the stuff, there, there's, there's a, lot, a lot I could say, but long story short, basically, is we've proven out all of the like core, how it runs, people building games collaboratively together, like running people through launch pads that get them from zero skills to being able to build you know, real games all the way to the other end of the spectrum, kind of capstone type projects where people are building games as teams from universities. And this is kind of their culmination of their university experience. And so we've been doing that for a while. The thing that we're tackling now that I'm really excited about is that we've got a few partners who want to run thousands of kids through the program. And so we're building out the infrastructure to now take that from what's been more manual to something that is you know, kind of more here really is the open community. And so how do you scale those launch pads? How do you get lots of kids running systematically through, you know, kind of the, the, all, all of the exact program that we've just done, kind of, you know, inject more kids into that system. But the core of it is basically how do you build circles along the journey? And these circles, each one flows, you know, from one into another. If I'm you know, total novice all the way to a professional and there are five circles along that thing, and we've done all four of those except what I call the center circle, which is that little that community of the kind of open source type game making. And so right now we're we're going after that. And you know, so we, we we've got a hard battle ahead of us. But it, you know, in the past it was interesting with endless OS and the access work sales were really hard because intermediaries did not understand what we were trying to do. But when we went to the end users, if we would present to people within one hour, 30 to 50% of them were signing up to buy immediately. So it meant that we had really hard hand-to-hand sales, literally like creating frontline sales teams that were like taking buses into rural Guatemala and um, you know that kind of an experience. And so um, sales were hard. On this one, it feels like it's the inverse. It's just like everyone we talk to is like, please, we need that. We want that. Like, bring it here. And so there we had the product, but sales were challenging. Here, the sales, it's like everybody wants it, and we just need to to scale. And Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, talks about you know do things that don't scale. It's a great blog post that um, you, know, you should go read, uh, whoever you are. And it talks about like, you've got to make the magic and the magic happens um, in small form. And then you figure out how to scale it, but make sure you've got the magic and it's clear we've got the magic. And so now the key is um, scale it. And then on the other side of that, we've just got so many programs that people want to run. And so our goal is just chase it, keep up with it. That's awesome. That's exciting. And I'm really excited to just see where it continues to go. I mean, it's amazing. You, the number of lives you have impacted even before Endless has been substantial and probably at least a few standard deviations beyond what most folks are able to, to do. And I think there will be another few standard deviations above that with Endless. So before uh, we end, I, I have the same kind of ending two-part question for all of our guests. I've kind of goofily modeled it after you know, take a penny, leave a penny dish at a convenience store. It, so the first question is, 
you know, leave something. What is uh, something specific? You know, it could be a an, a business insight or a you know a, an organizational building insight or a trick or a book or a habit that has been you know pivotal to you know what you've been building. And then on the flip side, you know, the second question I'll ask is, what can our listeners, what can our community, what can we do if we can wave, wave a magic wand and help you with what you're building? What what would that be? There are a couple pennies I, I, I I'd love to leave. I'll give two. The first is love what you do. It's hard to love what you do if it's not having an impact on people's lives. And when it has an impact on people's lives, it's really hard to cope with the challenges. Uh, And especially when you're building something, it will be inevitably beyond challenging. Like there are moments in this journey that is, it's just been so freaking hard to be honest. And I am, you know, there are moments where it's like, you know, I, I feel like I'm like, you know, anyway, just like, just all I had to do was let go. But I couldn't let go because it mattered so much. And today, on the other side of those hard challenges, like it feels like you know things are blossoming again. And I feel so blessed. But that blessing um, came from holding on, and that holding on came from caring, and that caring came from knowing it mattered. So that's the first. The second is I heard also actually on a on a podcast, which was a, a screenwriter being asked if uh, he ever got writer's block, and he said, "I never get writer's block." And they asked, "Why? How?" Um, and he said, there, there's this great book called um, The Artist's Way, and it talks basically about journaling, and journaling is almost this creative act of communion with God. And I won't do it justice, but if you just even read the first 20 pages of that book, it will set you on a, on a good journaling pa- pattern and habit. And I just find you know, that meditation and yoga are, are really important parts of my life, um, that triad. Uh, waking up early, you know, when when I can muster up with kids the confidence or the or the willpower to do that, but uh, but the journaling in particular, I just find so helpful in clarifying. Like it's so often where I'll be confused. I'll literally start by writing, like I don't know what I'm going to journal about today, and then like by the end of the page, I'm like, oh, I need to be doing that, and like all of a sudden, like my day is dedicated to to, to that, um, or the conversation, I, the next conversation I had. That happened this morning, uh, the, right before this, I had a call and. The clarity that had to come from that call came from me journaling. And I started that page being like, I don't know what to journal about. Um, so journal <laughs> and read, read the artist's way. That's awesome. To invert that, what, you know, if, we, if our community, our listeners had a magic wand, what's something that, you know, would be helpful to you all? Is it people coming to help build endless? Is it, you know, spreading the word about what you all are doing? Is it, you know, what, what could our community do to, to help support? you and endless. Yeah. I, I left, I left two cents. I'll take two cents. Um, so the first one is if you either have kids or you yourself are in a place where like the idea of game making is exciting, come join our community. It is still early. It, it is still early. Um, but even over like the next few months, a lot's going to evolve and open up and blossom. And so, you know, it's going to evolve a lot even over the next five months, but come build with us. And like the building honestly is as much about building games and uh, about building skills, like come for that because it's fun and you're going to enjoy it. But you are also building this dream and like the viability of everything I dream of comes down to basically how many people say, I want to be part of that. That's awesome. And, and build it. So it, it won't be us that achieves this dream. It will be you the community and, 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 you know, the kids who, who do it, the high school students, the university students, you know, whoever you may be. So that's, that's one cent. Um, the, the second is spread the word, share, share it. Our website's not great right now because we've been mostly, you know, just kind of talking with organizations and running things and haven't done much outward facing marketing. So if you land on the website today, uh, it's not great, but soon it will be better. Um, but it will make all of the difference for us, how many people adopt this and believe in this. And again, you know, to, to, to point number one are like, this should exist. This should blossom. This should manifest for my own life or my own children or in a school district, uh, like my students, uh, or in an emerging market or a nonprofit, like wherever you are, whoever you are, if you think there's someone in your sphere who should be following this, send them to our website you know, have them reach out to us, have them follow us because I, I think some exciting things are going to happen and I think it'll be great for them. But, you know, this, this vision happens because of those two things, people using it, people sharing it. 
Well, this has been great. And, and I, I can't think of a better sentiment to end on than, than that. So thank you for, for taking the time and joining me. And uh, I really appreciate you being on, you, you sharing both your journey and ultimately, you know, what has served as the foundation for building uh, Endless on top of. So excited for what you keep building and, and thank you for taking time out of that to, to spend with, with me and, and our community. It's been great to catch up, Troy. Thanks everyone for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is or want to build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. 